Is work part of our search for meaning? Mm. Is work part of our fulfillment as human beings? Or if we quote the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran, and I think you'll relate to this, is work, love made visible? The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of leadership and practical love. If you're new here, we're glad you've joined the movement, which has now spread to 150 countries. Please share this episode if it really grabs you and share with a friend and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. My guest today, I am super excited about. Hubert Jolie is going to join us shortly. He is the former chairman and chief executive officer of Best Buy, and he's now a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. He's also a member of the board of directors of Johnson & Johnson and Ralph Lauren Corporation, a member of the International Advisory Board of HEC Paris, and a trustee of the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Jolie has been recognized as one of the top 100 CEOs in the world by Harvard Business Review. He's also been recognized as one of the top 30 CEOs in the world by Barron's and one of the top 10 CEOs in the U.S. by Glassdoor. And he's got a new book out, which is the whole reason he's here. It's called The Heart of Business, Leadership Principles for the Next Era of Capitalism. This book chronicles his journey turning around Best Buy from really almost the brink of extinction to now, if you look them up, I did. They're now ranked 75 on the Fortune 500 list. The book is also an urgent call for the refoundation of business and capitalism and the playbook for how to do it. And we're going to get into that playbook on this episode. Hubert, welcome to the Love and Action podcast. But Marcel, thank you for having me. I so look forward to our conversation. Me too. And we always start, we got this new tradition on the show now where we start to show in the form of a question where you get to share your story. Now, there's two stories. There's the Best Buy turnaround story, which really is, is the book. But then there's the Uber story. What's your story? My story, <laughs> how would I describe it? One way to describe it is that uh, I am the story of somebody who evolved from a deeply analytical, hard-charging McKinsey consultant who was really focused on solving business problems and optimizing business performance of companies. To somebody who today believes in human magic and believes that at the heart of business is this idea that you know, it's about the pursuit of a noble purpose and placing people at the center and, and embracing all stakeholders and treating profit as an outcome, not the goal. And along that journey, there was, it was uh, you know, a lot of help I got from a client of mine, Jean-Marie Descartes-Pontrie, who told me 30 years ago, Marcel, 30 years ago, that profit was not the goal. It was an outcome and an imperative, but not the goal. Or two friends of mine who were monks, you know, asked me to write an article in a philosophy, in a, in a theology journal, 
about work. Why do we work? And then, of course, my good friend, Marshall Goldsmith, my coach, who helped me. And now in Marshall's infomercials, the before and after picture, the living proof that <laughs> you know, leaders can change. You can get better. <laughs> I love that this is the turnaround story of you, Bear, as well. So, you know, the great Bill George wrote the foreword for your book, and he caught my attention right off the bat by quoting you. And George says this, and he writes, talking about you now, by the time you, Bear, became CEO of Best Buy in 2012, he had led turnarounds at all these big, big companies. And despite his achievements, that's your achievements, by his early 40s, he was feeling disillusioned from chasing success. I'm telling you, I'm right there. I had to stop. So I'm going to give you a chance to explain why were you disillusioned with all this great success? And I'm so glad you speak so highly of Bill because Bill is one of my heroes. He's a great friend. Of course, we've been neighbors in Minneapolis and he's one of the wisest voices on leadership and authentic leadership in, in particular. So rewind 20 years ago. In many ways, if I quote David Brooks, I was at the top of my first mountain. Right? I had been a partner at McKinsey & Company. I was uh, on the executive team at uh, Vivendi Universal, which is a French-American at the time, a media and entertainment company. And so in many ways, I was at the top of that uh, first mountain, apparently very successful. And there was nothing there. There was no meaning. Yes, there was interesting business problems, and I love them, but there was no meaning. So I felt something in it, uh, emptiness, you know, my heart was not filled. I was motivated to work, but my heart was and my soul were not filled. So that was the moment that Bill talks about. Yeah. So this is a great segue to my next question, because I'm guessing that at that point, you said that you took a step back and spent time looking into your soul to find a better direction for your life. That is a profound statement. So talk about that experience. I mean, what did you find? Yeah. So I was. You know, very lucky, a, a friend of mine who was a client, a former client at McKinsey, gave me the opportunity to do the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola, of course, the, the founder of the Jesuits. And it's a, it's, and there's many different ways, you know, revisit your life and discern, you know, uh, what you're calling in life. Uh, this is one of the older and best one for sure. And you do spend time looking at your life. So what gave me energy in my life? What drained me? There's a contemplation of the two kings, right? So, you know, the earthly kings who is a good man and, but, you know, dealing with riches. So of course, there's, you know, Christ as the other king. And you have to, you know, it's about making choices in life. And then through uh, meditation, the help of your spiritual director, prayer, you try to discern your calling. And that's the essential thing. And you know, I'm now a professor at Harvard Business School and we have this program, this workshop for new CEOs. We're not like quite like Ignatius of Loyola, right? But we do ask the CEOs, write down your retirement speech. Mm. And my wife, Hortense Gentil, who is an executive leadership coach, encourages our clients to write their eulogy. Mm. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered because you made VP at the age of 30 or, you know, you hit that particular milestones in terms of earnings, or you, you bought, you know, your first, you know, this or something else, right? And for me, discovering our, the meaning of our life and our calling, that's a long process, right? And we get help along the way. But this is, in many ways, the most important task. 
And so that was very fortunate. That was quite foundational. Do you remember that exercise about writing your own eulogy? What, what did you write? I'm curious. So, you know, it's how do I want to be remembered? And for me, if I had to write it today, because this is something you get to rewrite regularly, right? Right, okay. It's, you know, the lives and the hearts I will have touched. Mm. You know, I remember a, uh, at Best Buy, there was one of the, one of the GMs at a big conference we were doing for all of the GMs. So thank you for saving Best Buy. Thanks to you, my children will be able to go to college. Yeah. I yeah. paused and say, let me go back to work. Mm. <laughs> I want to work harder. I want to have more kids go to college, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can imagine that there are so many lessons that you learned along the path to arriving at Best Buy in 2012. Can you pinpoint maybe one or two lessons that you say, yeah, th th I would not have made my success at Best Buy if it wasn't for these things? Yeah, I would, you know, probably go deeper onto three, yeah. three things, three milestones. One is that dinner, I think in 1991 or something like this, with Jean-Marie Descarpentries, that's a difficult French name, to say, <laughs> CEO of a computer company and a client. And over dinner, he had just come back from a workshop with other CEOs. And that's, what, that's when he lectured me and a couple of my partners uh, saying, this is what we believe. The purpose of a company is not to make money, right? Contrary to what Milton Friedman would like us to say. He says, this is simple. In, in business, there's three imperatives. Of course, there's a financial imperative. You need to make money, right? Sure. But think about the people imperative, meaning having the right teams properly motivated and equipped. You have a business imperative, meaning you need customers who are happy and you give them, you know, sell them good products. And then the financial imperative. And you said very clearly, you have to take things in sequence. It's excellence on the people imperative that leads to excellence on the business imperative that leads to excellence on the financial imperative. And he says there's very practical implications of this. So when you do a monthly business review, you know, when one day you become a CEO, don't start with financial results and with financial results. If you start with financial results, it is going to occupy the entire meeting. And you won't have time to talk about people and customers, so flip it. And then philosophically, he said, at the end of the day, you know, the, the ultimate purpose has got to be around people. And that connects with uh, this second learning, which, uh, you know, of course, we go in details into this, into the first part of the book, which is why do we work, right? And you have to reflect on this. Why am I working? Of course, we need some money, so I'll put this on the table first. But philosophically, as we think about work, is work a curse, a punishment, because, you know, some dude sent in paradise? And in French, the word work is travail, which comes from Latin tripalium, which is, Marcel, an instrument of torture. You know? <laughs> right. Is work something you do so that you can do something else that's more fun, like, you know, traveling, or if you're in Minneapolis, watch the Vikings beat the, the Green Bay Packers or something like this? <laughs> Or alternatively, is work part of our search for meaning? Mm. Is work part of our fulfillment as human beings? Or if we quote the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran, and I think you'll relate to this, is work love made visible? Mm. Yeah. And I think if we think about it like this, it changes everything. Yeah. And then, of course, if you look at a corporation, corporation is not a money-making machine. It's a human organization 
made of individuals working together in pursuit of a goal. And again, according to Jean-Marie, of course you need to make money, yeah. but that goal, if you connect to the idea of work, has to be to contribute to the common good. So these were very foundational thoughts in my journey that uh, deeply influenced, you know, have approached uh, leadership. Yeah, yeah. So basically, it's you take care of the people, the people take care of the business, and that leads to financial results. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So simple, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It only took me about 200 pages to figure that out in your awesome book, by the way. So then you arrive at that point where you just realize that, hey, nothing that is, nothing I learned in business school, nothing that I, I was taught as a consultant, everything we've been talking about is sort of an upside down model. It's kind of an inverted way of looking at things. I, I borrow from servant leadership all the time to describe this people first philosophy. And so let me quote you in the book. You said, so much of what I had been taught about business and business school and as a consultant and young executive, here we go, is either wrong, outdated, or incomplete. So I want to start with the wrong part. What's wrong? In my FBI most wanted list, Marcel, there's two people who epitomize the, the wrong and outdated. You know, you can com combine them a little bit. Sure. One is Milton Friedman who on September 13, 1970, you know, doomed us for many years right. by emphasizing the uh, shareholder primacy. Of course, shareholders are very important. At Best Buy, you know, we took good care of them. Share price went from a low of 11 to now $120. Shareholders are other human beings, right? We give them our savings and they try to generate a return for it. Well, by the way, these shareholders also know that planet and uh, purpose and Stakeholder is really important, right? If we don't want the planet to burn and the community to, to burn down. But this is sick too. It's, it's even not productive because if you're narrowly focused on the profit, you're not going to focus on the drivers and you're going to miss, you're not going to inspire people. Imagine for a second, I walk at, into Best Buy and I tell people our main focus is going to be to double the earnings per share or double the share price. Nobody's going to care really. I mean, they want the company to live, but you know, give me something else. So Milton Friedman, very dangerous. And I think most people understand this now. Second on my FBI most wanted list, Bob McNamara, former US Secretary of Defense during the, the, the Vietnam War and former you know, senior executive at, at Ford, the inventor of scientific top-down management. Mm. It's the idea that you know, in, in business or in the world, you take a bunch of smart people they analyze the problem, they come up with a solution, they tell other people what to do, and they check compliance. If they're kind, they're going to put incentives in place to make sure it works. <clears throat> that doesn't work. It may have worked, you know, during the early part of the 20th century in the terrorism era, where, yeah. where when tasks are quite mechanical, I think that that's the outdated part. But today, most of the jobs are creative jobs, are service jobs. And there's no way you can tell me exactly what I will have to do at any point in the, you know, in my business life. So you have any, and, and by the way, if you use carrots, you're going to get donkeys. Yeah. And that's, I don't want to have donkeys, you know, <laughs> populating the company. That's not, yeah. Yeah. that's not right. So these are the two FBI most wanted, uh, you know, for, for me. Let me, let me touch on the outdated part. You talk about the model of the leader as a smart, powerful yeah. superhero. And I'm telling you, heroic leadership is such a detriment to true leadership power. Yeah. Um, so what would you say is a, 
I guess, a powerful superhero, which really isn't what we're talking about, but yet we, it's still prevalent in today's corporate world. Yeah, the, well, I think it's, it's really changing. It's really changing. But the, the old model of last century was indeed this idea that uh, the leader is a superhero who is there to save the day, probably the smartest person in the room, mm. and unfortunately too often driven by power, fame, glory, or money. And that's dangerous. And plus, that doesn't work. If we could see your audience, we would ask them, raise your hand if you like to be told what to do. If you're, if you're driving, please don't raise your hand, right? But <laughs> nobody likes to be told what to do. And you know, we want to be part of the, of the journey and the solution. So this approach, nobody wants to follow these kind of, of leaders. Now, don't get me wrong, there are certain circumstances where you want the leader, if the ship is sinking, like it was at Best Buy in 2012, you want a leader who is able to be decisive, but that doesn't mean that, you know, he's not going to involve others in the decision-making process, and he's going to mobilize, uh, and maybe we'll talk about it, but it's, uh, it's all about creating energy. And, and so the leadership model today is very much somebody who is uh, clear about their purpose and who is able to... Uh, create the right environment and he's caring and he's vulnerable and he's very human. That's right. very different. Yeah, I can't wait to get into that, but I want to key in on this heroic or superhero type of leader. Tell me if you agree with this, because uh, sometimes uh, the tendency is to always have the answers and, uh, and you want everything perfect, which lends to perfectionism. And you talk a lot about perfectionism in your book, something that so many leaders struggle with, but you know what, they don't know that they don't know of the negative effects of right. being a perfectionist. Back in 2009, when I started to work with the famous Marshall Goldsmith, my coach, you know, the father of all of executive uh, coaches. And by the way, before I started to work with him, if somebody had told me Jack or Mary are working with a coach, I would have said, what's wrong with them, right? Who needs a coach? And then I realized that I'd like to play tennis with a, with a pro to improve my forehand. Well, when I was skiing, I liked to uh, ski with an instructor to get better in the muggles or in the deep powder. And so I said, maybe I should you know, consider that for my business life. In his amazing book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, which is a, the ultimate uh, bestseller in this area, one of the things that Marshall provides, I think around page 50 or something, is the quirks of successful people. And Marcel, when I started to work with Marshall, I had... 13 out of the 20 quirks of successful people, you know, not 20, but 13. And one of them was wanting to be the smartest person in the room. The other one was adding too much value. Mm. Certainly a disease I had at the time was perfectionism. And so wow. I want to dig into this because this is such a terrible disease. Yeah. And, you know, a friend of mine one day told me that the quest for perfection was evil. And if you think about it, you know, you can think about it in spiritual terms, and we're going to talk about it in business terms. If you're a perfectionist, here's the scoop. You're probably not perfect, so you're not going to like yourself. That's the first thing. Second, you're going to be working in teams. On that team, there's going to be other human beings. Here's the scoop. They're probably not perfect either. And so as they demonstrate their lack of perfection, you're going to get angry. And I would get angry or disappointed or agitated because I saw these imperfections as an obstacle to the goal, which was perfection. And so that creates an inhuman environment 
that can have the, the appearance of something that's lifting because you're driving for perfection, you're always improving, but you're destroying the heart of the organization and the heart of people around you in your own heart. And the mistake I made was for many years was to have my head cut off from the rest of my body. Mm. So, you know, part of the personal journey has been to work on getting better at, you know, getting rid of the quirks, you know, and learning to let go and refocusing the mind on this idea of creating the, the right environment. Okay. Personally, though, I want to get into, okay, if you're aware of your perfectionism, whatever level of leadership you're at, CEO down to supervisor, but, uh, and you're aware, okay, you know what? Yeah, that 360 degree review from my staff all the way to my customers is telling me something. And I finally acknowledge with, in my humility, that there are some habits I need to change. But how do you break the cycle? What's the process of not being a perfectionist? Yes. So most of us need help because the first time, so Marshall did the 360 and a lot of good information, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. My first reaction in the bad and the ugly was, who said that? What's wrong with them? They don't understand, right? So it's putting and, the blame on someone else. <laughs> exactly. That's how bad it was. And by the way, all of these lessons we're talking about is not just for CEOs, it's for all of us leaders, as you pointed out. Right. And all of us are, lead are leaders because at the minimum, we're the leaders of our lives, right? So let's agree with that. So in order to change, that's where, you know, my coach helped me. First, he laughed at me. So, you know, he kicked me. He laughed at me and said, <laughs> you know, and then over time, as I kept working with him, when I would get this feedback, he said, Hubert, you know, you actually don't need to do anything about this, right? Nobody has decided that, you know, only you can decide. And so then he repositioned it. He said, feedback is not interesting because it cannot change the past. So he's invented the concept of feed forward. So the process, and actually three months after I joined Best Buy, I told my team, look, let, let's, I want to describe it because I think it will make it come to life. I told my, my team, look, let's agree that this turnaround is going to be hard, right? The reason why I know this is that everybody thinks we're going to die. So, you know, it's going to be hard. And so that means that all of us are going to need the best leader we can be. And that includes and probably starts with me. So this coach, Marshall, is going to come in. He's going to ask you for feedback. So I would appreciate it if you would spend, you know, some time with him. Then Marshall gathers all of this. He tells me, you don't need to do anything, right? What would you like to do? So I picked three things I wanted to work on. And so I assemble my team, you know, in our regular, one of our regular meetings. I said, thank you for all of the feedback you've given me, all of the, the good things. Based on your feedback, there's three things I've decided to work on. Number one, number two, number three. What I'm going to do is I'm going to follow up with each of you personally, individually, so that you can give me advice on how I can get better at these things. And then three or four months from now, I'll follow up one more time to ask you how I'm doing and ask you for more advice. Believe me, Marcel, make it sound like it's light. The first time I had to do this, it's excru excruciating pain for a perfectionist. Because uh, yeah. I'm here telling my team I'm not perfect and I need your help. And they were so kind you know, to help me. And, and this is not about you know, correcting bad things. This is about getting better. How can I get better at becoming a more effective delegator or about creating a growth environment? You know, it's like improving my forehand. We can, we can all get better. And of course, what it did, Marcel, it's also signaled to all of the executives at the company that it was okay 
to not be perfect and to work on getting better at certain things and creating an environment where we all helped each other. And, you know, it was reciprocal. So it changed. That was a game changer for me personally. And also, I think, very helpful in the context of our transformation. Mm. Speaking of transformation, let's fast forward to 2012 when you took over Best Buy. And, you know, by the way, before this interview, I wanted to, there's a Best Buy right down the street. So I decided to, to pay a visit to see if, uh, okay. you know, I want to make sure that it's legitimate, the experience that you speak uh, of. And sure enough, it, it wasn't even 10 seconds before somebody came to me and just put their attention on me and, and my needs and what I was looking for. And they um, actually walked me over to the section where, you know, for the thing that I was looking for and stuck with me the whole time. Oh. And it was a busy store. Of course, I, yeah. I felt like a little self-conscious because there were other people waiting because <laughs> it was a busy store. Yeah. Well, I'm so uh, glad. I'm so glad. Yeah. Anyway, so let's talk about, well, how, how bad were things when you arrived? So, of course, Best Buy had been a, a great success story for many, many years, right? It had grown to be the largest and best you know, consumer electronics retailer in the, in the country. But starting in 2009, things went sideways. That's sometimes what happens when there's complacency. You know, they, they thought they had won. And of course, uh, then they started to blame, you know, Amazon online and companies like Apple or Microsoft opening their, their stores. And so there was a point in 2012 where everybody thought we were going to die, right? There was zero buy recommendation on, on the stock. And in some ways, this was the all-you-can-eat menu of challenges, right? There was strategic challenges with Amazon threatening the, the business and the tech companies opening their own stores. There was operational challenges because the quality of service at the time had really gone down. There was leadership challenges with my predecessor having been fired. And there were shareholder challenges with the share price going down precipitously and the founder and not just shareholder, the wonderful Dick Schultz, trying to take the company private. How cool is that? Four challenges. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I can't wait to get into how the turnaround, really from a leadership standpoint. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you to walk us through uh, a roadmap of steps that, you know, if you're a founder or an executive and you're faced with dire circumstances yeah. like a turnaround situation, or maybe, maybe you inherited a toxic company culture where turnover is, is really high and you're bleeding money. So we're going to come back and talk about the priorities to save your company from a leadership standpoint. Be right back. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. You probably already know this if you've been following the show. The question comes up often. What's the purpose of this show? What's the why behind love and action? Well, the simple answer, we need to eliminate suffering in the workplace and help leaders to flourish. Because when we have good leaders in place, the people under their care also flourish. That is really good for business. And by the way, as an extension of the podcast, I launched a leadership development course. It's got a catchy name. Check it out on my website. It's called From Boss to Leader. And in this course, I teach the skills that you often hear on the show. Things like how to communicate more effectively, how to engage your employees to put out their best effort, and how to build a high-performing organization 
So check it out. I'm taking calls right now, and I'd love to personally chat with you to see if this course may be a good fit. Reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on virtual training. Okay, class is in session. So I, I want to ask you to walk us through a leadership model that all business leaders should pursue. And we're going to reference the chapter of your book called Unleashing Human Magic, because this is so perfect. I mean, every one of those people empowerment and engagement strategies that helped in the turnaround of Best Buy, they're certainly not new. I've read those principles in countless leadership books. But they work and they need to be revisited over and over again so that my listeners will finally believe, hey, this is going to work for my company and start acting on, on these principles that you teach. And you call them the five ingredients. I want to go over those five ingredients in a second here. But first, when you came into Best Buy, <laughs> you had to save the company first. So what's at the foundation for rescuing a company in financial distress? At the time, a lot of the advice I was getting was cut, 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 right? Which is the typical approach for a turnaround. Close stores and fire people, okay? And so the, Right out of the playbook, by the way. Exactly. And so in our story, this was really two phases. I want to break it down, make it very concrete and practical. The first phase, which we, we called the Renew Bloom, was about saving the company and turning around the, the company, which was a very people-centric approach. The context was that uh, I felt that the main task was uh, fix what was broken, right? Because the world needed Best Buy, customers needed Best Buy, the vendors needed Best Buy, they needed a place where to showcase the fruit of their billions of dollars of R&D investments. The problems we had were self-inflicted. So the, what we did was essentially make sure our prices were competitive, that you know, our online shopping experience was good, the speed of shipping was good, so that we could neutralize Amazon. And then play to our strengths by investing in our stores and in our people. That's the what. Yeah. The how is more interesting. It's all people-centric. It starts with people because people are not the problem. They're the source. So first week on the job, Marcel, I spent working in a store to be able to listen to the frontliners because it's on the front line that you're going to find out what was broken. And so listen really well. And of course, then acted on what they told me that, needed to change. It starts with people also at the top. So in a turnaround, I'm a bit of a Maoist. I believe that fish rot from the head, okay? <laughs> and so sometimes the approach to change management is to change management. You know, when the, yep. some of the team members at the top, you know, are not a good fit. It also ends with people. So that's a key point. In my turnaround manual, instead of cut, 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 the first priority is grow the revenue. Right? which is why we invested in the shopping experience and all these kinds of good things. Of course, oftentimes you're also going to have to go after cost. Okay, But first priority on the cost side is go after what I call non-salary expenses, which is everything in the cost structure that has nothing to do with people, which at most companies is the bulk of the cost structure. Right. And you only go to headcount reduction as a last resort. You don't have a choice. But even then you do it well, you know, maybe you redeploy people, you treat them on the way out as well as you treated them on the way in. 
And the last element of the humanity of this turnaround in this first phase is this idea that, uh, of course, you're going to come up with a plan, but the key is not so much the quality of the plan, it's how you can create energy. In physics, we're told that uh, energy is a finite quantity, not in a human organization. So your role as the leader is to create energy. How do you do this? Mm. Co-create the plan, get going, celebrate small wins. If there's problems, talk about them and you know get a team together to solve the problem. So it's all about creating the energy. So that was the first phase. Then in 2016, all right, we decided the turnaround was over and that we were going to focus now on accelerating our growth and creating a company that the customers, the employees, the shareholders, all of our stakeholders would love. And that's when we went to truly unleashing human magic. And so that's now I want to get to your to your okay. question there. But I think it was important because sometimes, in particular in this time where people are all convinced about purpose and you know the importance of the humanity of our employees, which is all right, but sometimes you have to lay the foundation. And one of the things I've learned is that operational progress creates strategic degrees of freedom. So sometimes you have to start with fixing the basics before you think about creating an yeah. amazing future. So here we go. You have five key ingredients for creating a fabulous work environment, which you did at Best Buy. So I want to start with the first of the five, okay? And you'd label it as connecting dreams. So how does that work? What's a good story to illustrate that? Yes, yes, yes. Because we've talked about it, right? The old top-down approach of telling people what to do, that doesn't work. So being French, I, I think, uh, yes, I, <laughs> I've earned the right to talk about the ingredients of unleashing humanity. <laughs> and connecting dreams, it's this basic idea that something magical happens if we can connect what drives us individually with our work and with the overall purpose of the company. Because that's when we have a spring in our step, that's when we are full of energy. And so your question is, how do you do, the, how do, you do this, right? Let me give you two illustrations of that. One is very practical, a store channel manager in the Boston market, you know, one of the questions he would ask all of the associates in his store, typically 100 people, is tell me about your dream. At Best Buy or outside of Best Buy, what is your dream? Okay, write it down in the break room. And then he said, my job is to help you achieve your dream. That's a game changer. The same thing happened, and I think that I would encourage everybody to do this. One time with my team, you know, we would get together for an offsite every quarter. And one time over dinner, ask everyone to bring a picture of themselves when they were little. And during dinner, we went, we shared with each other our life story. And essentially, what was the meaning of our life? How do we want to be remembered? All of these questions. That was a game changer because that get, got me to see my team members as human beings, not just CFO or CMO or what have you, and realize that for 80% of us, it was all about the same dream, which was to make a positive difference in the world. And that gave us the desire and the courage to use the platform we had, which is Best Buy, as a force for good in the world. So that's, that's about connecting dreams. Yeah. And I would say that connecting dreams overlaps to your, your next ingredient that we want to bake in, and that's developing authentic human connections. You cannot connect dreams unless you're being authentic in helping people connect to those dreams. But we hear the word authentic, authenticity so often in leadership 
vernacular, but uh, and it sounds almost like an old tired cliche, doesn't it? I mean, how does that work though? How do you develop those authentic connections? This makes me think of a, uh, there was a young man who once told me as I was uh, in a store that his life changed the day a manager recognized him and took an interest in him. And we've been trained, so you, people will be familiar with my compatriot, uh, René Descartes of the Cartesian philosophy, logic, who said, I think, therefore I am. I think he's wrong. It's I am seen, therefore I am. And everything changes in an organization is people feel that they exist, that they're respected, and that they can be themselves. And as a leader, we get to create that environment. So Cami Scarlett, our wonderful head of HR, one day revealed to everybody at the company that for years she had been struggling with depression. Do you know how many, you know, do you know many C-suite executives from you know, large companies or small companies who talk about their personal struggle with depression? You don't do this. You're supposed to be a superhero. Exactly. But it changed everything because it, tell, it, it said to everyone at the company that we're all human beings and sometimes we'll struggle and that doesn't make us worse human beings. And so as leaders, that's how we shape the environment. Of course, the theme of diversity and inclusion comes right there because that's all about everybody being included. And that's a lot of work and that's uh, way more important in a sense, or at least as important as coming up with the right strategy, frankly. So is it accurate to say that you cannot foster authentic human connections unless you're vulnerable? You have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to be able to say, my name is Hubert and I need help. My name is Hubert and I don't know. And that's very relevant today in this world where there's so many curveballs that are being thrown at us, where there's no playbook. The, the, the myth of the leader who knows everything is gone. And as a leader, our mindsets, it's a mind shift that we need to operate, is to go from the know-it-all to the learn-it-all and learn how to say, my name is Uber and I need help or I don't know. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's keep baking and I'm going to sprinkle in now your ingredient <laughs> number three, which is fostering autonomy. And some people would say, hey, that would never work here because if we give our people too much freedom, they'll run the asylum, you say. <laughs> yeah, the autonomy, that can be scaring, right? Unleash creativity. So yeah, but what if they do something wrong? That would be, that would just be terrible. And yet we know, again, we've asked this question, we didn't see any hands go up. <laughs> Nobody likes to be told what to do. So the magic happens if you can create an environment where people can do what they think is right. And one of the early policies we established at Best Buy, it was a short policy. I'm going to read it entirely. It says, don't do anything stupid, crazy, or goofy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> if you see something that's either crazy, stupid, or goofy, don't do it. Cami famously said one day, so in, in retail, you have standard operating procedures, SOPs. She said, that doesn't stand for, no, that stands for service over policy. Okay, and you have to be comfortable with that. Now, a very practical step we took at Best Buy that really contributed to unleashing human magic was when I was, it became very clear with, with our team about what were the decisions I was responsible for. And frankly, there was only four or five. And then the other decisions, we had to push them down as far down as possible to, to Judy or Mary or, or Jack, who actually were the more competent about the, the issue. 
and it made it clear to them that we, the senior executives, you know, we may express opinions and inputs, say, I'm not sure, say, uh, you need to tell me more, but that's not a veto, that's input. You're in charge. Yeah. And so you get to decide from whom you're gonna take input. And then we wanna have your back. And our responsibility as the uh, leaders is to give you, if you ask, the best possible input to you and make sure that you feel it's just input. Sometimes we get confused. We said, how about if we did something like this? People think it's, you have to be very careful. You know, if you're higher up, people are gonna think it's a directive you're giving them, whereas you're just, you know, thinking about an idea. So it's really changing that. And that, so autonomy doesn't mean chaos, but it means empowerment at the right level. Yeah, and one of the best examples that, of what you're talking about, that autonomy, fostering autonomy, comes from a book called Turn the Ship Around by uh, a former uh, Navy uh, captain, uh, David Marquet. Sorry. I don't know if you've got a hold of that book yeah. yet, but he talks about empowering human beings by really pushing authority down. Yep. So you're creating competency at lower levels so people can actually make decisions on their yeah. own. Exactly. It's, yeah. a, it's a great book. Yeah. Okay. So we got two more ingredients before we stick this in the oven. Okay. And number four is achieving mastery. So I translate that to mean helping human. It's basically creating human development or helping people with their development, not just professional development, sure, but also personal development. And there, there's two counterintuitive ideas that I want to emphasize because they struck me as being very powerful. Traditionally in management, you focus on results and numbers and you manage your subordinates based on their performance. It sounds like a great idea. It's actually a mistake. Mm. As you manage teams, much more important to focus on skills, behaviors, and drivers, and making sure that people learn what gets them to the great outcomes. So that is actually very demanding for the supervisors because they need to know. It's not only that they need to count, but they, it's more important that they know what it takes to be successful and that they help their teams and getting better at what makes the team successful. The second counterintuitive idea, in particular in large organizations, is that mastery and development is individual. Imagine for a second that you're Roger Federer and I'm Hubert, and we have the same coach. Do you think that the coach is going to give us the same, you know, program? No. And the truth is, in an organization, everybody has got different, is at a different stage and that needs different needs. Always different needs. And as a supervisor, that means we need to become an individual coach to every one of our team members. And that, yes, there's, there may be some mass training, but it's individualized coaching that actually makes a difference. And we did it. it actually, you can actually do this at scale, and it makes a huge difference in outcomes. I love it. I love it. Yeah, develop your people. Okay, final ingredient is what you call putting the wind at your back. What is that about? So it's two ideas here. It's first that uh, it's about growth, right? Creating a growth environment. Life is about growth. If the organization and the people in the organization are not growing, you know, there's something wrong. And, you know, when I joined the company, the previous team had talked about headwinds. They were very good at finding excuses. The reason we're not growing is there's a shift to online or price deflation and things like this. No, you actually focus on what you can control. And then you use the environments to create your own wins. 
and create your own destiny. So you're really the captain of your soul and, and your organization. And you're not a victim of your circumstances. Yeah, yeah. You better speak to the CEO that's listening right now that may be faced with some of the, the, the challenges that you were faced with, you know, and perhaps one of the challenges that they face is that there's not enough buy-in. So they, you know, they're swimming upstream because not everyone is on board. Maybe the board is split, or maybe the executive team is saying, this is not going to work for us. What would you advise as a basic first step, or what would you say to that CEO? Well, I tell you, when I studied at Best Buy, you know, and we shared, for example, our plan with the investors, it created a big yawn, you know? <laughs> and so sometimes it takes, you have to prove that it actually works. Now, as it is to your own team, you need to make sure that, you know, you have a team that's going to be diverse, of course, with a diversity of points of view, but that they're committed, they're, they're, they're in. And that, uh, you know, there's some basic agreements on some principles and on how, what goal we're going to pursue and how we're going to get there from here. And if, if people have a choice, if they don't like the goal, that's okay. They can leave. If they don't like the philosophy, that's okay. They don't need to work here. Right. And it was very clear over time with our leaders you know, on these leadership principles we talk about in the book. If you, if you don't like them, that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. We're going to promote you to being a Best Buy customer which is a wonderful thing. We'll take good care of you. But at the same time, you want to explain things. You know, we don't want to assume ill intent. So our board, I was very transparent with our board about, you know, what I thought the situation was and what I was proposing to do. And you, tr you treat people with respect and you, and like customers, right? My board was a customer. I needed to work with them and ask, ask for help, by the way, uh, from them. And so it was a, I never felt that there was, you know, tension along these lines. I think we all wanted to save the company and we wanted our best. And I mean, the only tension was uh, we were very harsh with ourselves. We, we're not, it's not you know, going fast enough or we'd like to accelerate. So how do we debottle next? So that was this constant search of how do we accelerate? How do we go faster? How do we amplify? Which is a very healthy question. Hmm. Well, as we wind down here to the end, I wanted to tell you that the reason we have this podcast and the reason I created it is because I, I personally believe that leadership is an expression of love and you've already alluded to it. And so before we wrap up, tradition on this show here is I want to make the link between leadership and practical love, you know, love as caring behaviors, love as a verb, not as a squishy feeling that will engage the hearts and minds of people to, you know, do great things together. So if you were to boil down this conversation, how does a leader love well day in, day out? So we said, right, work is love made visible. So right. how more clear, clearer you need to be. I think it's about just this idea that business is about embracing all stakeholders, the employees, the customers, the partners, the community, the shareholders, and developing it's some kind of declaration of interdependence, developing love with all of these relationships. I love the idea of love brands. Mm. Uh, customers love, you want them to love interacting with you. You want the employees to love being here. You want the partners to love working with you. You want the shareholders to love you. You want, and of course, love is a reciprocal relationship. And so, you know, that goes both ways. But it's this idea to refuse zero-sum games 
and that this is the beginning. This is a beautiful friendship that you're building mm. with all stakeholders, treating all of them in a sense as customers. Yeah, I do want to acknowledge that you're right. We, I have seen the shift from a, a shareholder capitalism to a stakeholder capitalism over the last maybe three, five years, especially it's been kind of noticeable. So thank you for that. We end our episodes with two final questions. Personally, what is really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know? So, you know, it was last year. I'm the eternal optimist, but last year I had to take the first step of the 12 steps of, uh, you know, AA and, and admit to myself that the world we are in is facing a multifaceted crisis, right? Mm. It's a health crisis but also economic, uh, racial, societal, environmental, geopolitical. And that actually I found, even though it's sad, but also liberating, because once we've admitted that things are not working, then you have to say, okay, so how do we change them? And what can I do to make a positive difference, knowing that you know, we have a number of ticking time bombs. Uh-huh. And my mission now is you know, adding my voice and my energy to, you know, fixing what we have and this necessary foundation of business and capitalism around purpose and humanity. So it started with, you know, a punch in the gut and say, what we have today is not working. Mm. And I so much appreciate you adding your voice and energy to our platform so we can increase our energy and our voice as well to the world. So if one last question, finally, and that is you get to close this episode your way with that one final takeaway to bring us home with. Well, Marcel, th- thank you. That's a daunting question. I think that, you know, we, we're, we're exiting this pandemic and we're getting out of the lockdowns, which strikes me a major lesson from this time is that if you cannot go outside, go inside. What do I mean by this? It's leadership from the inside out. Spend time with yourself, figuring out what kind of a leader you, you are, what kind of a leader you want to be. What legacy do you want to leave behind and how you want to be remembered as a leader and use that as your true north to be the best leader you can be? You know, what problems are you going to help us solve? How are you going to help us create a future that does not exist yet? But frankly, that needs to be more sustainable. And lastly, remember Marcel, when we were flying a long time ago, we were taking on airplanes. Yeah. We're told if the oxygen, oxygen mask comes down, put it on yourself first before you help others. Right. So to all of us leaders out there, make sure you take care of yourself. You know, you exercise, you meditate, you reflect, you ask for feedback. I don't, you know, you journal. I don't care how you do it, but make sure that you breathe, right? Every day, every week, you take care of yourself so that you can be, be the the biggest, most beautiful, most extraordinary version of yourself. That's what the world needs. We need you to be extraordinary. So take care of yourself. Mm, I love it. If people want to connect with you, you bear, where can they go? What website should yes. they click on? Yeah. So the website is uh, my first name, my last name.org. So it's hubertjolie.org. No dot, no dash, just hubertjolie.org. There's a lot of content there. By the way, on the website, there is a business electrocardiogram, of course, where you can take a, an assessment and look at the health of the heart of your business and it helps you pinpoint the areas where you may say, well, gee, we're doing so great in these areas. 
And then maybe, gee, let's talk with my team. How could we get better in these areas? So it's a business electrocardiogram. How cool is that? That it's is awesome. Yeah. Hey, it's been a blast. I'm so glad that uh, we ran into each other and I truly appreciate your wisdom today. Marcel, thank you for the opportunity and everyone be well. Join the conversation and comment on this episode with hashtag love in action podcast. And you can look also for my show notes on my website, marcelschwantis.com. I'll make sure that I include Uber's contact info in there as well. I'm coming right back with my one action item for you to start doing every day based on this conversation. So Hubert talked about the three imperatives that he was taught, people, business, and finance. They're all linked. So let's simplify this model. And if you're a senior leader or you're looking to scale your business, your first priority is excellence on that first imperative, the people. This is focusing on the, on the development and, and a fulfillment of your employees. If you take care of this imperative first, it leads to excellence in your second, the business. Now you have loyal customers buying your products and services again and again. This then leads to excellence on that third imperative, which is making money, people, business, profit. That's the sequence, not the other way around. As Hubert says, this makes profit an outcome of the first two imperatives, not the main goal. So put that into practice, make the people your number one priority, help them to flourish, and the business will flourish. That is love in action. That wraps it up. My special thanks to Hubert Jolie for inspiring us with his wisdom. And thank you, Love in Action Nation, for joining the conversation. And finally, if you or your company would like to sponsor an episode of Love in Action, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help more people to find the podcast so we can keep spreading the love in action movement. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and be convinced.